We are going to be jumping back into The Great Escape, which is our walk through the book of Exodus, which has been very exciting. We are in message 55, praise the Lord. Uh, last week in our, in our message, which was called Hallowed Unto God, which was part two, we moved from the external process of hallowing the, the, uh, the priests of God to the internal uh, and the spiritual, which is the variety of different sacrificial offerings. These offerings were to be not only to cleanse these men from their sins, but also to humble them before the Lord so that God could actually use them for his service. This morning, we're going to get to examine further ceremonial works that will be done preparing Aaron and his sons in their priestly doodles, doodles, in their duties, <laughs> and doodles perhaps, maybe they were artists, who knows. Um, as we do, we'll take a close-up look at the role humanities really has in the process of hallowing ourselves before the Lord. And today's message is called Hallowed by God. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you so much for today, and we thank you for this opportunity, Lord. It is uh, a humbling experience to be able to preach the Word of God. And Lord, I know that you have spoken to me throughout the week, and Lord, I know uh, that my desire, Father, today is that you would speak through me the words that I share and not be the ones that I would choose, Lord, that you would remove the human element, that, Father, the very words that will come out will be the ones that you would choose, Lord. We love you. Thank you so much for what you have done. Help us to have ears to hear, Lord, that we might receive the word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're going to be, just in quick review to give you an idea, uh, last week we looked at really the fact of how sin encumbers our ability to serve God. We talked about sin. Now, sin, if you're not aware of this, sin is behavior that is displeasing to God, anything that's displeasing to God. We discussed that the cleansing of ourselves is really a matter of not blaming someone else, not finding a way to justify our sins, but taking responsibility for our sins. Then we also talked about the fact that we recognize our sin, that we have to take responsibility for our sin, and then we talked about the last thing was repenting of our sin. Repenting of our sin means to turn away. That means to turn from evil, to turn unto something that is good. And repentance is important because it does allow us to cleanse ourselves. We don't cleanse ourselves, and ultimately God will, but it allows us to come before God with that mindset. Then we also talked about the priests as they ate the, the offering. Remember, they ate a part of the offering. And what it was, was it was this showing symbolically what they were doing is they were receiving, right? They were receiving parts of God's holiness. And we looked at the fact that it was symbolic of the fact the way we receive Christ, the way we receive his word, the way we receive his spirit, and then we also talked about the aspect of eating, which is the satisfaction that comes from eating a good meal. And when we satisfy ourselves in the Word of God, what's wonderful is people that have a void in their heart. They have a, they have a desire or a need as they come to the Word. And if they'll truly look, God will feed them. God will give them what they need. And what's wonderful is the fact that people that are in desperate need outside of these doors or outside of any church or any, anybody who's outside of God's will, if they will come to Him, they can find incredible satisfaction. So Exodus 29, verse 29 is where we're going to be this morning. And the holy garments of God, or the holy garments of Aaron, and uh, shall be his sons after him to be anointed therein, to be consecrated in them. Now, as we know, based upon God's established pattern and God's character, that God always has a plan in everything that he does. And what we see in this scripture, he's actually not only establishing Aaron and his sons to be the priests, but he's actually talking about those priests that are to come. He's already planning for the future. Verse 30, and that son that is priest in his stead shall put them on seven days when he cometh into the tabernacle of the congregation to minister in the holy place. So as future generations will take on the responsibility of serving the Lord, that same sanctification process that we see here with Aaron and with his sons, guess what? The same process is going to be used and adhered to here. For a seven-day period, for a solid week, they're going to spend time in reflection. They're going to spend time in repentance. They're going to spend time 
in developing humility because that's what's that's just absolutely it is 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 direly important for us to understand who God is and have a proper view of God because the problem we have in our culture today is people have lost sight of who God really is right they don't understand who he is so this at this time of time in this period of time they're going to have a heart of service they're going to develop this humility in order to properly understand and work with the Lord Mark 10, 44 through 45 says this, And whosoever of you will be of the chiefest shall be servant of all. God needs to develop a servant's heart within these men. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister to give his life a ransom for many. A servant's heart. A humble person is someone who naturally serves others. Someone who is prideful naturally wants to be served. God came and Christ himself set the ultimate example in coming with a servant, servant's heart with humility and meekness. It is this humility and meekness that allows us to cleanse ourselves and qualify ourselves to actually be used of the Lord. The first step to humbling ourselves before the Lord is to have that proper view. Seeing God for who he is, right? In our day and age, what we have is an issue. The fact is we see everything filtered through a distorted lens. We see God filtered through a distorted lens because, because guess why? You and I, we have a humanistic view of God. We have God and we place him in within the, the, the frailties of humanity. We place him within the understanding of how a human being functions, the way a person thinks. He says, my ways are not your ways. My ways are above your ways. Yet we want to put God in a human box and sort of say, well, I think I understand God. Now, what happens is by doing that and understanding God, guess what you're doing? You're putting yourself on level ground with God. Well, guess what? Now, longer the reverence that, would, that should be here starts to reduce itself. And now it isn't. I don't feel so bad about disappointing this God. Because when he's here, holy moly, I don't even want to face him. But if I can bring him down here, it makes my sin not seem quite so bad. So it's a matter of constraining him to these limitations. What we have to remember and remind ourselves is the fact that God is the creator God. Everything that is here is because he spoke it into existence, man. He spoke and it was done. God is all-powerful, man. That means he's omnipotent is the word that we use, omnipotent. God is, guess what? He's also omnipresent, meaning he is everywhere all at once. And at the same time, he's omniscient. He knows everything, right? And some people hear that and they go, well, you know, I just, I have a hard time understanding that. Colossians 1, 16 through 17 says this, For by him were all things created and in, are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist, right? Now, I want you to take this concept that we're listening. We go, oh, yeah, it seems kind of hard to understand. But imagine this. Imagine you're a writer, okay? And I want you to imagine that as a writer, you're going to develop your story, right? Now, you can do anything you want to in your story. After all, you're the creator. You have all power. Guess what? You're involved in every page and in every moment that your characters experience. You are omnipresent. Guess what? You're involved, yes. But guess what? The outcome of the story, your story, you're writing it, right? Where it begins, where it ends, it's all up to you. In fact, you are absolutely in total control. The outcome of your story will be individual thoughts of each character. You know every one of them. You are omniscient. The timeline of the story is completely up to you. You are outside of time. So if you're writing in your story, and let's say Kyer's in my story, and I say, Kyer suddenly jumps up and begins to run out of the room. And then I set the pen down, and I go on vacation for three years. 
tires in mid-step. <laughs> All right? And I'm out having vacation for three years. I come back three years later, and I pick back up, and he falls flat on his face. Well, all of a sudden, Kyra went, whoom. So guess what? I'm able to exist outside of time, but Kyra's bound to the time that I'm writing. That's exactly the way it is for God. He's outside of this thing looking in. So understand, he is the creator. You're the creator in your story. He's our creator. So with that understanding, let's look at these. There's a couple points in here in Scripture where there are men that God blessed to be placed in a situation where they got to see God's glory in their own, with their own eyes. Ezekiel 128. As the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud in the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness round about. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell upon my face. He said, I could not even stand up. I fell on my face. Isaiah 6, 5 says this, after Isaiah's literally able to be zapped into heaven, he looks and he sees God in all of his glory, and he says this, Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone. That means you just literally, you just collapse. You have nothing left. You are undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He's seen the King, man. And it's that reverence that we see. Revelations 1.17. Picture this. Understand, this is John. This is John the Beloved. This is the one who Jesus loved. This is the one at the Last Supper who laid his head upon the, the chest of Christ, heard the heartbeat of God. Imagine that. Put your head on the chest and hear the heartbeat of God. I want to tell you, when you really get in this Word, guess what you can hear? The heartbeat of God, man. It's awesome. Whew. And listen to what John says. He has a close, intimate relationship with John. Revelations 1.17. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. He said, I literally collapsed. This is the Jesus that I knew, that I was so close to, that I walked with, that I had conversations with, that I believed in and trusted and walked and looked into his eyes. But now I cannot even look at him because in his real glory, my word, I can't even look. And look at this. And he laid his right hand, the right hand of power upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. Whew, I don't know about y'all. That fires me up, man. I'm like, <laughs> <clears throat> all right, let's go. Consider the fact that John, again, had that personal relationship, and he's yet overwhelmed. He falls on his face. But how about us, right? How about when we picture God? How about when we go to his word and he speaks to us, man? Are we reverential of it? Does it slam us, man? Does it put us on our knees? Does it make us think of God and say, you know what, I'm undeserving to even look in his direction? Because you and I, we know who we are, right? We can fool the world, but we know who we are. And guess what? God knows who we are. He looks right through us. When we think of God and his holiness, does it overwhelm us and put us on our faces? Or does our humanistic view of God and our overdeveloped sense of self-importance allow us to look at ourselves and compare him and say, you know what? I'm doing all right. I'm doing okay. See, if it's the latter, we've got a serious problem. Because what happens is we have a humanistic view of God. He does not deserve that. But guess what? Because of the society that we live in today, and we saw just even in the video that Brother Larson showed, the attack on God. And there's people out there that are desperately in need of him, yet they've been told that he doesn't exist. So guess what? They have become more and more desperate, even as we speak. Without humility... Before God and the fear of Him, we can never be truly effective for the cause of Christ. God, 
His glory demands our reverence. It absolutely demands it. And if you saw him for who he was, you really did. And guess what? There will be a day when everyone will see him exactly for who he was, or who he is, right? When we're at that, that, at that, the judgment seat, man, as believers, as you stand at the judgment seat, you are going to be overwhelmed by who you are facing. Overwhelmed. And at the great white throne, when every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that he is Lord, there will be no doubt that God is who he says that he is. And there will be reverence for him in that day. But you and I need to learn to do it now. Our problem is that we can't see his glory because it's obscured by our own. We're so busy making it all about us that we can't see him. Now, back to our instructions of verse 31. And thou shalt take the ram of the consecration and seeth his flesh in the holy place. During this process of sanctification, what's going to happen is that the priests are going to be kind of sequestered out. They're going to be in the outer court of the tabernacle for this, this uh, seven-day period. Leviticus 8 gives us a little bit more detail, lets us know that they're not outside, but they're actually inside of the tabernacle area. It's in this area that sin was atoned for, right? This is where the meat sacrifices, of the sacrifices were done, out there where judgment was taking place, out of there. And this unleavened bread and the meat is what's going to sustain them during the seven days of the sanctification. Verse 32. And Aaron and his son shall eat the flesh of the ram and the bread there that is in the basket by the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And they shall eat those things wherewith the atonement was made to consecrate and to sanctify them. Notice that. They're going to, it says, it says they're going to eat, these, eat those things wherewith the atonement was made to consecrate. They're going to eat to consecrate and to sanctify them. But a stranger shall not eat thereof, thereof because they are holy. These are sanctified for the priest, right? Their eating was not only to sustain them, but guess what? It's actually a part of their sanctification. It's actually a part of the consecration. You know what that pictures for us? It's what we consume has something to do with our consecration. It has something to do with the, the hallowedness of our life. Right? What am I consuming right? with my ears, with my mouth, with my eyes? Right? What am I consuming in my music, in my friends, in my media, right? in, my, in what I watch, in my hobbies, in my imagination? What am I consuming? What am I putting into me? Is it consecrating me or is it defiling me? In the end, the choice is not God's. The choice is ours. He gives us a free will. We get to decide, what am I going to put my time and energy and focus upon? You and I will inevitably become a product of our environment. It always happens. So we need to make sure that the environment is a godly one. Galatians 6, verses 7 through 9 says this, Be not deceived. This is talking about believers, man. Don't fool yourself. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption, and he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. And verse 9, And let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. Right? This process is going to be a lengthy process. They're there seven days, man. They're putting their time and energy, but it's going to be worth it in the end because they're being sanctified unto God. And guess what? It's the same is true for us. The process of sanctification is not easy. It's not something that happens overnight. You don't do it once and you're done for good. It's a daily reform or a daily process that we're going to go through. So, but the thing is, what he's trying to tell us here, he says, let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season... Because when you plant, guess what? There's a time, that, there's a time of, of planting, there's a time of watering, and there's a time of harvest. In due season, if you just be patient, keep doing right, because if you water stuff for, you know, for the first two months, you water your plants, and then you go, look, nothing's growing, I'm done. I ain't watering them anymore. They're worthless. 
Well, guess what? They're never going to come up. But if you just keep taking care of them, there will be a day when you'll see that sprout pop through the ground. And what's beautiful about the fact that when it comes, the harvest is so much, so much greater than what was planted. You plant one seed and one plant comes up. You don't get one seed back, man. You get thousands of seeds back. God gives you so much more. And he's saying, look, if you'll just be faithful, keep doing the right things, keep having your heart focused on God, keep hallowing your life, keep living for me, guess what? One day you're going to see these results. And if not even in your life, what if it's in your children's life? What if it's in the life of somebody else? Man, it's worth it. That's a promise from God, and he does not break. His promise. God is faithful and he can be trusted. It's just like, you know, it's the example somebody gave me years ago. You know, it's about feeding. What am I going to feed? Where am I going to put my time and energy? Am I going to put my effort into my flesh or am I going to put it into my spirit, right? This is a battle. You and I battle against these two. The Bible says that they're enmity of one another. They battle against one another. My flesh wants to do things that my spirit says, no, 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 that's a bad idea. My spirit's going, we should do this. And my flesh goes, well, that sounds difficult. I don't want to do that. But, you know, if you compare it to a dog fight, if I have two, two dogs and I'm going to put them in a fight and I chain one to a tree and I don't feed it for weeks and I take the other one and I feed him lavishly and I give him meat and water and I take care of him and then one day I let him fight, there's a really good chance that the one that's been fed is going to win dramatically. Which one am I feeding? Am I feeding my spirit or am I feeding my flesh? If you're feeding your flesh, guess what? It will be dominant. If you feed your spirit, that will be dominant. God's begging us to feed our spirit. Verse 34. And it ought, and if aught of the flesh of the consecration or of the bread remain unto the morning, then thou shalt burn the remainder with fire. It shall not be eaten because it is holy. The whole process here should be remained hallowed. This whole process should be all about this uh, development. There'll be a new sacrifice each day, and whatever's left over will be burned. Verse 35. And thou, and thus shalt thou. Do unto Aaron and to his sons, according to all things which I have commanded thee, seven days thou shalt consecrate them, and thou shalt offer every day a bullock for a sin offering for atonement, and thou shalt cleanse the altar when thou hast made an atonement for it, and thou shalt anoint it to sanctify it. So the same process that we studied last week, the same thing is going to be done again for these next seven days. The repetition of consecration is a matter of engaging daily with the same process about mortifying, right? You and I, if we relate this to ourselves, Every day we're going to mortify our flesh. As Colossians talks about the fact that mortify your flesh, that means kill those things of the flesh, those things where you wanted your body or your will or your imagination, those things that are, that are not of God, those things that are trying to swell within us. He's saying, look, you need to deal with these things every single day. Unlike these, these priests who would repeatedly make atonement for sin, praise the Lord, that's not the case for us. The Lord Jesus Christ came and he made atonement for our sin once and for all. All. Romans 5, 17, 18 says this, For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace, those who receive Christ, and of the gift of righteousness, shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. My pages are sticking together. Here we go. Therefore, verse 18, as by the offense of one judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. Our sin debt, man, past, present, and future is paid in full. Praise the Lord. God can see our life. Some people, there are people that are, that are in churches right now that believe that they are saved up until the day they make a mistake. Well, the problem with that is the fact that what you're doing, you're saying, you know what, God does not have the power to keep me saved. Guess what? You don't have the power to get yourself saved. So guess what? You don't have the power to get yourself lost. 
It's an impossibility. You cannot do that. God sees your life. Because understand, 2,000 years ago when Jesus is on the cross and he's looking in his mind's eye to David Goodson, he saw me where I'd be born. He also knew when I would die. So guess what? Everything I did in that lifespan, the dash of my life, he's seen it all. So it isn't like when I'm 52 years old, at 52 in one month, all of a sudden God's like, oh, I forgot. I didn't pay attention to the future. Oh, man, you had some mistakes in the future. Well, I didn't pay for those. No. He saw it all, man. So God pays for the sin debt for your life. He knows who you are, and he knows every mistake you've made, even things you don't even know that were wrong. God even sees those things and will bring them to your attention. God has paid every bit of it in full. Verse 37, seven days thou shalt make an atonement for the altar and sanctify it, and it shall be an altar most holy. Whatsoever touches the altar shall be holy. Now this is that which thou shalt offer upon the altar, two lambs of the first year, day by day continually. So these are going to be male lambs. They're going to be under a year old. They're called yearlings, okay? Now what's interesting, we've noticed that the number seven keeps coming up again and again and again. It's pointing to significance here. And in fact, the number seven shows up over 500 times in the Bible. We see it in the seven days of creation. Remember the lampstand that's in the tabernacle. Guess how many branches it's got? Seven branches. That's not a seven, that's five, but... Seven. Um, Joshua <laughs> will circle Jericho seven times. And guess how many times they're going to blow the trumpets? Seven times. Then Solomon built the temple. Guess how many years it took? Seven years. Naaman, when he had leprosy, they said, go to the Jordan River and you're going to wash yourself. Seven times. There were seven feasts of celebration on the cross. Jesus spoke seven times. The early church established deacons. And guess how many there were? Seven deacons. In the book of Revelation alone, the number seven shows up 59 times in the book of Revelation. Seven is relevant because guess what? It is the number of perfection. That's God's plan. So it's not a coincidence that these men will have a seven-day time of perfecting in order to take their priestly roles. Verse 39, the one lamb thou shalt offer in the morning and the other lamb thou shalt offer at evening. These two yearling lambs will be sacrificed on the brazen altar in the outer court. The same method used in the morning will be the exact same one in the evening. Now, he gives them a regimented schedule. Why does he do that? Because guess what? They are naturally undisciplined. They are naturally rebellious, right, in their service. You and I, guess what? We are naturally undisciplined. We are naturally rebellious. How many of us are inconsistent with our time with God? Raise your hand if you be honest. Inconsistent, right? Yeah. We're like, man, I should do it every day. I'm going to do it every day this time. But we don't because guess what? We're undisciplined. We're rebellious. And what he does, he gives them a very specific schedule because he's saying, look, you need to know that you're doing it at this time. You're going to do it in the morning. You're going to do it in the evening. And what's really cool about that is the fact that it is a matter of simply saying, look, you're going to make me a priority. You're going to schedule your day around me instead of me fitting into your schedule, right? And that's what we do, unfortunately. We have a schedule of what we're going to do. I'm going to get up and do this, 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 that. I'm going to do all these things. And if I find a place to fit God in there somewhere, I'll shoehorn him in here between this appointment or this thing. Or I'm going to, when I'm in the car, I'll do a little time with God. That's completely wrong. If you really had a reverence for God and we really see him for who he is, we would make him priority in our life. It's like, it's like if my wife and I, right? If I tell my wife, hey, honey, you know, I got a busy week this week. You know what? Hopefully I'll get a chance to spend some time with you. Um, I got all my schedules done. Um, I think I can probably see you at lunch for about 15 minutes. Um, and if I can, I'll just swing by. How about that? Does that work for you? How does my wife feel? Does she feel important? No. Does she feel as if she has priority in my life? No. She just falls along the wayside. She just becomes an unimportant detail. But what I'd say is, you know what, honey? You and I, we have date time this week. 
and I don't care what's going on, I don't care what's happening, but you know what? This time from here to here, this is our time. And I was like, I want you to know that we're going to schedule this a week ahead of time, and I'm not going to let anything, no matter what it is, I don't care what happens, I'm turning my phone off, we're going to spend this time together. What am I telling her? She's a priority. When you spend time with God, he's trying to say, look, you need to regimen your life so that you look, I have time with the Lord. He's saying, why not make it a bookend? Why not start your day with the Lord? And why not finish your day with the Lord? Why not start before you even get started in the day? Say, Lord, you know what? I'm thankful for this morning. Thank you for what you've done in my life. And see, and remember, he's given us all that he's given us. But we have an ungrateful attitude. We're rebellious by nature. That's us. We're undisciplined. He's saying, look, start the day. What if we did? What if we started our day with the Lord every morning? And you just, man, you, you spoke to him. You broke your heart out. You spent some time in his word. He dealt with you. You dealt with him. You communicated. And then throughout the day, you're thinking about that. And you knew at the end of the day, when you got in your bed, when you laid down at night, you knew you were going to meet with him again. Amen. And you're going to go over the day. Lord, you know what? When I was there and you gave me that opportunity to talk to that person, thank you, God. I know that was you working in my life. And when I felt your pull and I felt your tug that I should give that person a track, thank you, Lord. And when I was going to do that one thing and I felt that, oh, I didn't do it, thank you for caring enough about me to help me stay on track. Lord, thank you for my family. Thank you for my children. Thank you for my health. Thank you for my strength. I saw a man today who was in a wheelchair. You know what, God, I can walk. Thank you, Lord, that I can walk. You've given me so much. I'm so ungrateful. Help me to be grateful. Help me, Lord, to have a heart of thanks. And God, as I sleep tonight, Lord, help me. Help me, Lord, to have a heart that says, you know what, I want to grow in the Lord. And as I sleep tonight, Lord, help my heart to be at peace because I know I'm walking with my God. What if that was what we did? And see, my challenge for us this week is this week, this seven-day window, just like then, I want you guys to focus on when you wake up, meet with God. If every one of us met with God when we woke up and we spent time with Him and we went throughout our day knowing we we're going to meet with Him again, which gives us some accountability, and we met with Him at night, and I challenge you, if we all do that this week, just this week, that's all I'm asking you for, seven days, but you start your day with him and you end your day with him. Next week when we meet again, guess what? We'll have a shared intimacy with God like we've never had before. And I guarantee you we'll have a stronger church. No doubt about it. 1 Peter 2.5 says this, Ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. You and I are supposed to be offering ourselves sacrifices. They're getting up in the morning and they're offering sacrifices. Guess what? That sacrifice is us. We talked about it last week in Romans 12.1. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, Right? So in the morning when you wake up, you mortify that flesh. Lord, I know my flesh is going to fight me today, but today, Lord, I lay it upon the altar of God, and Lord, help my will to be gone that I might live according to your will today. Help me, Lord, to submit myself to you. We do not recognize that it does say it is our reasonable service, our reasonable service. Y'all enjoying this because I'm loving it. Mercy, praise God. Y'all are all like, you'll buck up, I know you will. Verse 40, I need to give you all more coffee. <laughs> Verse 40, and with the one lamb, a tenth deal of flour mingled with the fourth part of a hen of beaten oil and the fourth part of a hen of wine for a drink offering. So this unleavened bread and this wine are going to be in conjunction with the sacrificial lamb. Now, isn't that kind of interesting when we think about it? Where else can we think of an occasion where the bread and the wine are in 
accompanied to a sacrifice of the lamb. John 1, 29, right? The next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Well, guess what? When you and I take the Lord's Supper, what are we doing? We're identifying with our Lord's death, death on the cross through the bread and through the wine, right? That's exactly what's going on here, and it's focusing. This is way back. This is thousands of years ago. Way back here when he's stealing these instructions, he's actually pointing to us and the Lord's Supper. He says, listen to this in 1 Corinthians 11, 23-26. He says, For I have received of the Lord that which I have also delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given, this, given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this, this do in remembrance of me. And after the manner also he took the cup when he had supped and saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. So as for as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, do ye show the Lord's death till he comes. The lamb, man. The lamb associated with the wine and with the bread. It's picturing that Lord's Supper. And it's no coincidence that as we take the Lord's Supper, why do we do that? To consecrate ourselves as a church to deal with sin so that we can be hallowed unto God. Guys, nothing in this Bible happens by accident. It's all tied together because it's all the same author over thousands of years, all done for a purpose that we might understand who he is. The reason the Lord saved us and the reason he brought us together, guess what? It's to serve him. That's God's purpose for us. Sin is the barrier. Sin is the barrier that we have to deal with. And we have to deal with honestly and through the holiness of God to be restored unto him. Verse 41, And the other lamb, thou shalt offer it even, and thou shalt do therefore according to the meat offering to the mor of the morning, and according to the drink offering thereof, for a sweet savor, an offering made by fire unto the Lord. So the morning and evening ceremonies are going to function like bookends for their days. Verse 42, and this shall be a continual burnt offering throughout your generations at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation before the Lord, where I, meet you, where I will meet you to speak there unto thee. So the same ceremonial process is going to be used for generations to come. Guys, in fact, 1,400 some years in the future, John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, guess what he's doing? The same ceremonies that are talking about right here. As God's instructing Moses here up on Mount Sinai, these are the same things that Zechariah is going to be doing 1,400 years in the future. Verse 43, And there I'll meet with the children of Israel, and the tabernacle shall be sanctified by my glory. This verse teaches us a principle that is direly important for us to understand, extremely important. I want you to pay attention to this. See where it says, And there I'll meet with the children of Israel, and the tabernacle shall be sanctified by my glory glory. See, it's by God's glory, God's authority, God's power that sanctification can take place, right? It's, it's, understand this, it's like this. It's not up to the offender to make sure that forgiveness is given. It's up to the offended. Because if I hurt you, I can't control whether or not you forgive me. I can do all that I do. I can try to make it right. But in the end, if forgiveness is given, it will come from that one that has been offended. Well, guess what? When we offend through sin, guess who we offend? We offend God. Our sin ultimately is against Him. And that's what He's talking about. He said, look, bottom line is your whole thing is He's saying, look, you're to be glorified, you're to be sanctified, you're to be hallowed, not because of the things that you do, but because of the glory that I have and the power that I have to forgive you. 
Psalm 51 verses 1 through 4 says this. Listen to David as he talks about his sin. He says, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions. Remember, we talked about recognizing, then taking responsibility, then repenting. And he says, And my sin is, be- is ever before me. He says, man, I see you, God, for who you are. I see for who I am. I recognize my sin, God. I'm calling before you, broken. Verse number four, against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. And he says, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. He says, look, I know I deserve whatever comes my way. It's that recognition of who he is that allows us to be humbled before God. David is a humble man based upon his sin. We have to be willing to look within ourselves, recognize where it is we've failed, and understand that God still loves us. That grace that he extends is so unbelievable. If we are hallowed to God, hallowed unto God, it will not be through our works, but through our repentance to God and ultimately God's forgiveness. Verse 44. And I will sanctify the tabernacle of the congregation and the altar. I will sanctify also both Aaron and his sons to minister to me in the priest's office. Notice that regardless of the works, right? Moses and Aaron, they're all going to do all these things, but 100% of the sanctification comes from God, right? He is the source of truth. He is the source of forgiveness. He is a source of love. He is the source of holiness. You and I have no holiness of our own. We borrow everything we get from God. Verse 45, and I will dwell among the children of Israel and will be their God. He's not going to be their God because they deserve him to be. No, he is going to dwell with them and be their God in spite of them because of his unimaginable grace and love. He sees how rebellious they are. We watch them time and again, fail, 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 fail. And God sees us again, time and again, every day, fail, 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 fail. And yet... And yet, ready to forgive, ready to restore, ready to use, ready to bless, blesses us even when we don't deserve it. God is so merciful to us, yet we don't even give him reverence. And praise the Lord, guess what? The same unimaginable grace and love that he extended to them is the same exact, exact, same exact thing he extends to us. Hebrews 13, 8 says, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever. Praise God. The same grace that, you, that God extended to, uh, to the stiff-necked, rebellious Israelites is the same grace he extends to us, not because we deserve it, but because he loves us in spite of ourselves. Verse 46, And they shall know that I am the Lord their God that brought them forth out of the land of Egypt, that I may dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. So the Israelites, right? God delivered them from bondage in Egypt. We've talked about in the past how Egypt is a picture of the world and a picture of sin. We talked about the fact that the Israelite is a picture of the individual believer. We talked about the fact that Moses is a picture of Jesus Christ, the deliverer, and then he brought them out of bondage. You and I were in bondage to our sin. The deliverer came, brought us out of that bondage through that love that he had for us. He leads us out of that. He takes us into the wilderness. That's the Christian life. We walk this life, and what's it full of? Challenges, opportunities to fail, to succeed, and what is he telling us through the entire time. Keep your eyes on Canaan, boys. Keep your eyes on Canaan. Keep your eyes on Canaan. Canaan is a picture of heaven. The Bible says, set your affection on things above, not on things of the earth. But we spend all of our time focused here. And what we're simply saying is that he's saying, look, you know what? I want them to remember where it is they've come from. 
right? Remember the sadness. Remember the oppression. Remember the pain. Remember what it is you were in and how you suffered. The problem is they have a short memory because time and again what we'll find is they'll say, we should go back to Egypt. We should go back to Egypt. We should go back to Egypt. And as Christians, when times get hard, sometimes when we try to serve the Lord, we go, man, it's tough. You know, it's hard. I'm trying to reach the people for the Christ. I'm trying to stand for, to do the right thing. I'm trying to live a life that believes, gives God glory, and it's hard. It was so much easier when I just lived in that sin. It was so much easier when I just didn't even care. And here we are, just like the Israelites. Can I just go back to Egypt? Can I go back to the bondage of that garbage? It always sounds so much better because we have a short memory. We forget our pain many times. And we think about our glory days of the past. Let me just tell you this, sin will never, ever fulfill you, and it will always leave you broken. Amen. Always. That so whatsoever you soweth, that shall you also reap. If you reap to the flesh, you are you sowed in the flesh, you reap corruption. Corruption means distortion, pain, defilement, brokenness, all the things we're trying to avoid. We want peace, we want love, and God says it is available to you, every one of you. Just walk with me. Walk with me. He's simply saying, I want them to remember where they came, remember where they came from. But the thing is, do we remember where we came from? Do we honestly, truly think back to where it is we were? Some of you got saved as children. You go, well, I never really did anything that bad. Let me just tell you, for somebody who lived in the world for 34 years of my life, who lived in sin, who lived in all that stuff and hurt people and made choices and lived with the consequences and lived with the pain of it, it's not worth it. You did not miss out on anything. These Christian kids go, I mean, I missed out. I'm like, no, you missed out on awful things. You missed out on being in situations where you're, you're with your wife and you think of something in the past that you did. And it hurts you because of what you did and the choice that you made. You think of that pain or what the person that you hurt in the past and you live with the guilt of it. Man, praise the Lord if you never experienced that. What a gift. What a gift. You didn't miss out on anything that you could possibly really want. You're just ignorant to what it is that you missed out on? Do we remember the sadness that we brought from? Isolation, the pain, the fear, and absolutely our sin. Every one of us has deliberately sinned against God because we know when something's right and wrong. We know, we saw in the book of Romans, it says it's written on our heart, man. We know. You can go anywhere in this world, people know that stealing's wrong. They know that lying's wrong. They know that killing's wrong. But you know what? My wife and I, prior to salvation, we killed a child. We, went, we had abortions. And we killed we lied, we've cheated, we've stealed, stealed, stolen, whatever, you know what I'm talking about. We've all done these things, and we did it consciously. We knew what we were doing, and we did it against God. We did it against God, and he's offering us forgiveness, not because we deserve it, but because he loves us. He wants to justify us. He created a way not only to forgive us, but to justify us through his own sacrifice. Every stripe that he took upon his back, all the ridicule that he suffered, all the violence that he was, was betrayed against him, all the torture that he went through, he suffered it all because he loved us. So with every stripe, every slash, every punch, he's saying, I love you. Because he had the power to stop it in an instant. And it's because of that love that he endured every single moment. And on the cross, as he hangs there suffering, and he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. With love in his eyes. And yet we don't reverence him. And we're not thankful. And we don't pray to him. We don't start our day with him. We don't finish our day with him. And we live our lives if it's, if it's all about us. When in reality, it should all be about him. And what these instructions reveal to us is that, first of all, it is essential that we have a proper 
view of God. Man, the way you get a proper view of God, learn of him. Learn of him. Spend time with him. Learn his heart. Look at what he's done for people. Look at his, the, the measures that he will go to to touch and to reach humanity. And think about what he's done in your own personal life. Secondly, we have to have an awareness that, that causes us to, to, to keep him number priority, to make him number one in our life. He should always be number one, no matter what the instance. It goes God, then your spouse, right? Then your family, then your job. And what happens is so many people have these things reoriented. And Jesus, the Lord, is way down at the bottom of the list. And I guarantee you, their life is a mess. Priorities in the proper order. Life functions as it is designed to function. And the third thing, filtering the influences that we allow into ourselves. What do I allow to influence me? Does my music, does it feed me spiritually to walk with God? I, you know, I've, I've told you guys before, I'm vulnerable to music. That's the kind of thing, you can get, I can hear a tune and I can sing, I'll sing it all day long. So if it's something bad from my past, Man, I could sing that all day long. It'll be stuck in my brain. So guess what I do? I sequester myself audibly. I don't listen to anything that does not glorify God at all. I don't care what it is or what the instance is. We try to sequester and protect ourselves from the influences that hit us. You and I decide what it is we choose to receive. In the end, our loving Father wants to dwell with us. But this can only happen if we accept his offer of forgiveness and surrender our will to his, right? And then and only then, can we be hallowed by God? Because in the end, it's him that does the work. If you're to be hallowed, it's because you surrender to him. It's his power that brings us out. It's his power that saves us. It's his power that consecrates us. It's his, his power that works through us if we're ever to do anything for him. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. Thank you so much, God, for today. And God, for your message. Thank you for the words that you've given us. Father, thank you for the spirit, Lord, that's in this room. And thank you for uh, Brother Larson being here and his wife. And Lord, just uh, thank you for the, the time of, of fellowship. And Lord, uh, but more importantly, God, the way that you've worked in us to see ourselves for who we are. And Lord, help us to see you for who you are. God, help us. Help us, Lord, to put time and energy and focus into developing a relationship with you, Father, that allows us to richly see you, to refine what we allow inside of ourselves, God, to keep your priority in our lives with our heads bowed, with our eyes closed. If you're here today, and you say, you know, Pastor, I, I, don't, I don't know that I have an understanding of God. I believe in God. Don't get me wrong. Maybe I've read the Bible. Maybe I've prayed my whole life. Maybe I've been in church my whole life. But it's not about religion. It's not about ceremonies. It's not about any of that. It's about understanding that God is the answer for you. And it's a personal relationship with Him. The Bible says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. It says, If you believe in your heart and you will trust Christ that he is exactly who he says that he is, he has the power to save you. He's already done the work on the cross. And as he looks at you today and he looks within your heart, whether you're online, whether you're watching this recorded, whether you're in the overflow, wherever you are, it does not take a preacher. It is not a magic prayer. It is a broken heart that wants to be restored by a loving God. And I want to tell you that right now, He is ready and waiting on you. You can receive Christ through a simple prayer, but it's not the prayer. It will be the words in your heart that God is listening to. He's listening to your heart. And if your heart truly wants to receive Him, He will receive you. He's ready with arms wide open, with our heads bowed and with our eyes closed. If you want to receive Christ as your Savior, I'm going to lead you in prayer. But remember, it's not the words. He's listening 
to your heart. With heads bowed and eyes closed, repeat after me in your heart and your mind if you want to receive the Lord. Dear Father, I know that I'm a sinner and I am so sorry for all that I've done wrong, for the people that I've hurt, and most importantly, the way that I've hurt you. Please forgive me. I'm asking you right now, by faith, to come into my heart, to save my soul, and give me a home in heaven. I believe you have the power to save me, and I will see you in heaven one day. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.